on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, yes, it is America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's called Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, although he's not visible, and Weston Williams. All right, this week, a personal hero of the OBS's own OC is inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'm going to give you a few hints. He's one of his generation's pioneering Rossini singers. He's from Queens. Mm. And Sir George Schulte once told him that he has Mozart and Verdi in his throat. Mm. Keep listening if you haven't already figured that out. And two-minute drill. Hey, COVID is over in Atlanta. So now you are free to move to Georgia and vote in their gubernatorial election. Hey, if you're watching on TVO, make sure you subscribe to that podcast. Get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. Apple Podcast, just hit the plus sign. It's that easy. You can also send us a voice memo from your phone or email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that beer coaster and that obvious lapel pin. Oliver Camacho, there he is. Look at so that speaking yellow of a feedback from our listeners, we did get some feedback from one of our favorite listeners, Kenny. I hear you, Kenny. Um, but I just want to say I was listening last week because I wasn't on the show. And so many times, like, no, no, wrong, no. <laughs> so that's my feedback, you guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> wrong again. No. I, I, I guess we'll, we'll we'll keep that one between Oliver and, and Kenny. Um, I'm still trying to think of that fifth. Uh, handle up, by the way. I'm just stuck. <laughs> You've had time. <laughs> Weston Williams, how are you? Uh, uh, I mean, I just, you know, I'm just uh, sitting pretty with my knowledge of exactly six handle operas, just <laughs> ready to go at any time. How dare you, Dan. Cubs <laughs> baseball has started. Uh, they managed to get into a bench-clearing brawl in the second game of the season. Nice. I think oh. that's a record, probably, that was against the hated... <laughs> Milwaukee Brewers. All right, let us talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. This tenor that we're about to talk about um, is one of my personal heroes. And I used to have his headshot on my piano. Did you um, really? I did. I still have it. Uh, I don't have it with me. I, I brought it to work. But um, I used to just stare at that gorgeous face of his so that I could be inspired uh, to look sing. look at you now. To sing as beautifully as he did, <laughs> to do color tour licks as well as he did, and to try to have a jawline like his. Uh, hard to imitate somebody's jawline, I will say, but um, maybe the reason why I failed as a singer is because I thought I could sound like Frank Lopardo. But uh, yeah, it's a very you know unique voice, uh, has a very unique technique, uh, and he had chops for days. And um, in a way, he is he represents the beginning of the renaissance for Rossini operas, the tenor parts in Rossini operas. Now, we've always had great mezzos and sopranos who could sing this music, but somehow we were always deprived of a healthy athletic sound. 
in this music until, well, you'll hear the conversation that Matt and I have about the uh, the flourishing of the Rossini tenor, which um, Frank Lopardo was a part of. Let's hear a little bit of Frank Lopardo from his recording of Barber Seville. got Matt to join me for this special Hall of Fame because we're going to talk about the rise of the Rossini tenor. and A repertoire in, that's very near and dear to both of our hearts, I know. Yes, and in so doing, we are inducting one of my personal heroes, Frank Lopardo, American tenor Frank Lopardo, into the OBS Hall of Fame. And for those of you kids out there, you know that <laughs> meme uh, where it's like, and the first part of the meme is, oh, we, the mother says, you have so-and-so at home. And then there's like a, the second half of the meme is like, and that's a picture of what the so-and-so right. is, but like all janky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like deconstructed. So, right. So, um, you know, your, your pre-90s um, Rossini tenor uh, is not the same thing as the Rossini tenors we now have that just seem to pop up out of nowhere. Uh, but obviously, the great Rossini tenors of the moment are um, Rene Barbara and um, Juan Diego Flores and, and Javier, friend, Camarena, friend show, Javier Camarena and, and friend and, of the show Larry Brownlee. Of friend of the show Larry Brownlee. But before that, let's just like take it back to pre 1980s. The people who you would find singing in Rossini operas are what were lovingly considered to be tenore di grazie, uh, the tenors of grace. And they were singers, mostly Italian, some Australian and English, um, who had the sweetness in their tone to uh, sing a Rossini cantilena. Uh, like literally, it... like literally get the notes out, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Usually. Most of the it, notes out most of the time. When it came to the cabaletta part, uh, more often than not, the solution was just to cut the cabaletta up so that they only had to sing a couple of phrases. In some more difficult roles, uh, about high-lying Rossini roles, uh, the solution would be just cut the aria altogether. Uh, but, you know, in an opera like Barbara Seville you can't really cut Count Amadeva's first R. You can cut the second one, but you can't cut the first one. So Until might... recently, most people did cut yeah. the second one. <laughs> yeah. um, you might get an Eco Ridente in Cello Cabaletta that sounds like this. I won't shame this tenor, but here's a tenor who sang a lot in these Rossini operas. Lostral, Lostral. 
props to him. Uh, he did what he could, you know, at the time, but um, that was about as fast as he could do it. And he still couldn't quite, you know, sing all of the notes. Uh, and the approach do... is very croony. And there's yeah. no, like, there's no cut. There's no excitement in the tone like you would expect today from, like, Juan Diego Flores is like 97% cut. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is what we had. Uh, this is what I had, like, when I was coming up. If I wanted to listen to Rossini. But then, because I'm, like, the perfect age to have seen this happen, um, we get uh, a tenor like Rockwell Blake, who, I forget the, what the marketing used to be on him, but, like, that he could sing 64 notes per second or something like that. Like, there was some yeah. weird thing that was attached to him, you know, the fastest tenor around. And, uh, yeah, he definitely had the speed in his voice. And... A, a virile American sound. I think if anything, American voices uh, can be known for American male voices is just like that athleticism. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if not graceful, they're always we're, we're the jocks, you know, of the opera world, you know. It can get a little unwieldy, but in terms of like the tone quality and the vowels in particular, but the excitement is always there. Yeah. And the uh, rhythm is always there. Purity and, like, of vowel will never be Rockwell Blake's. But you <laughs> are gonna scene. but you are never, ever, ever gonna have to compromise on speed with Rockwell Blake. Yeah. And so, or uh, like the ridiculous phrasing choices that he can make. If you have never heard Rockwell Blake, uh, why don't you go out there and listen to uh, some rock but there's plenty of him out there and it's actually very exciting like he was i think the first person i heard sing that terra amica from zelmira uh which has a really fun hook in it and uh yeah he that has just... a, like a high d in the main theme of the, <laughs> yeah, of the exactly. aria <laughs> that you which means you have to sing it 17 times yeah uh and another tenor who came up in the uh you know 80s and whose principal career was in the late 80s and early 90s, was the Mexican tenor Francisco Araiza, uh, who had a little bit more of a beautiful, more of a bel canto tone. Uh, maybe not didn't sing as fast as Rockwell Blake, but um, he could articulate, uh, mm -hmm. and he tended to put a tiny little glottal stroke in his Rossini so uh, that you could hear some of those faster notes. Mm -hmm. um, I think of him as more of a Mozart tenor than I think of him as a Rossini tenor. But he's on a lot of those recordings from the mid '90s. Like you're the, he's on all of those recordings with Neville Mariner when right. they're just trying to get a little bit fleeter, a little bit um, more historically informed, yeah. but without throwing the baby out. Yeah, well, his Cenerentola with uh, Agnes with, Balza. Is, I love yeah. that recording. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then comes around this guy named Frank Lopardo, uh, who grew up in Queens and was studying at Juilliard and apparently didn't come from a lot of affluence and used to, you know, take long walks and long train rides to get to school. And um, from what I understand, I talked to him actually from my show last week uh, on WFMT. Uh, he was a bit of a rebel, you know, tattoos uh -huh. and uh -huh. really heavily worked out, like, you know, stacked and like long hair, leather jacket type of guy. And he didn't really fit uh, the mold of a Juilliard student at the time. And it turns out that Juilliard thought the exact same thing and they relieved him of his scholarship and he had to discontinue his study. That's a nice way to put it. He had to discontinue his studies. Yes, you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> at Juilliard. But maybe that was the thing that gave him an edge uh, because he found his own teacher, a guy named Dr. Robert White. Uh, and Dr. White uh, taught him how to really develop his falsetto. 
and also encouraged him to take it easy on the weights. Um, and, uh, you know, when Frank Lopardo was a student, uh, he had listened to a lot of Richard Tucker, who was his favorite tenor. And he had this sort of muscular quality in his voice that his teacher tried to dissuade him from and go, you know, explore his falsetto. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think his professional debut was like singing Fenton. Uh, but he his, he discovered that he could sing coloratura. Mm -hmm. And uh, which ha there's nothing like that in Fenton, which it's all yeah. that's all very like high and floaty. Right. It's like Nanetta, but you're a man, you know. And every and then you have to pop out a really huge B flat at, yeah. <laughs> at the end of your aria. <laughs> and you don't get get any applause because it goes right into Because it goes right thing. into an into a duet. <laughs> yeah. Um so I he learned how to sing Barbara Seville and uh he began to get contracts for that. Uh, but he also, I believe, was heard by Claudio Abado. I forget when he told me when, but Claudio Abado heard him sing and invited him to participate in a Vienna production of L'Italiano Nalgeri, which was a vehicle at the time for the great Agnes Balza. And also in the cast were Ruggero Raimondi as Mustafa and Enzo Dara as, um, is it Ali? Is that the name of the character? Mm -hmm. So a oh no, he's probably the tutor, Enzo oh, Dara. Tadeo, Tadeo. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a deluxe Italian slash one Greek uh, cast of people who have been a very doing, spicy Greek, <laughs> yeah, who have been doing this repertoire their whole lives, and this one American, Frank Lopardo, and um, Frank told me that when they had their first musical rehearsal. Uh, he was in this tiny room, a room that was too small for all of these people to be sitting in. And, you know, Italiana basically is an overture followed by um, the first aria of uh, Lindoro. So he was the first person to get up and really have to sing in front of this. Very yeah, there's like a little silly trio right before yeah. it, but nothing yeah, as memorable Elvira as... And whatever, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first big sing is uh, Frank Lopardo's Languir per una bella. And he was nervous as F and he did it. And he said he probably oversang it because he was like trying to like, Oh, you know, how make... could you possibly oversing? <laughs> so th those of you who have never tried to, have you ever tried to learn that aria? Have you tried? Yeah, I, I know I actually, I can, I can sing it uh, in with lots of breaks in between. Like it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is relentless. Speaking of high notes and I one time counted, there are 27 B flats in the cabaletta of that aria because it is again in the main theme and it is yeah. it is just relentless and you get to the last page and you have to do a run for three systems and then you do it again and then you go up to the top and come back down and go up to the top and come back down and go up to the top and come back down just like a tightrope walk for seven minutes six yeah. minutes but it's amazing well let's hear uh you know this is the recording that they made of this opera uh, after that Vienna production, uh, let's hear uh, the aria Languir per una bella. We'll uh, jump right into the cabaletta. Oh, <laughs> 
So this is the type of singing that we did not have um, before Lopardo and Ariza and Rockwell Blake came along. And I think it opened up a whole world of possibilities. And suddenly you could cast a bel canto opera and really, you know, do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the other parts can be exciting as well. And like we really learn more about these operas because like, oh, yeah, I'll... I'll actually listen to that whole opera now, and I won't just fast forward to mm-hmm. the Marilyn Horn and Joan Sutherland duets, you know? <laughs> and, well, all those old recordings also, like, they're so cut to ribbons. Philip Gossett talks about this a lot in his in his book about Italian opera, that, like, when you cut it, the structure feels so imbalanced that actually it feels longer and more tedious than if you have all the repeats in, and it, you know, works the way it's supposed to do. And when, but in order for it to work the way it's supposed to, you need people who can get all those notes out and not get fatigued for like five pages of cadential materials and like keep the excitement building without topping out. Right. When you've got like a, when you've got a Cadillac of a voice like that, that is so beautiful and interesting and virile, but also like very flexible, shockingly flexible for like how much tone there is. It's really exciting. Well, um, so, as I said, I, I spoke to Frank Lopardo on my show for my other job, and um, he talked to me about how uh, Don Otavio is actually the role that he most identifies with. And this is now moving to Mozart a little bit uh, and how everything, you know, that is, you know, signature about his sound, you can find mm. in the role of Don Otavio, the way he utterly floats Dalla Sopace, which is one of the most difficult artists ever written, but is somehow given to young tenors who are just learning how to sing. <laughs> but only goes up to a G, so it must be easy. Yeah, just to <laughs> discourage. I think it's it's meant to discourage people from studying voice. Well, wasn't because... it kind of written as an FU for that first singer who <laughs> exactly. the, the, for the Vienna production because he yeah. thought Il Mio Tesoro was too hard and Mozart was like, mm-hmm. I'll show you too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for those of you who don't know Dallas Apache, 
Uh, it is Don Otavio's first aria that he sings after uh, Donna Anna is like, I want revenge. I'm going to kill this guy. He's like, oh, but peace. <laughs> That's his response. Um, it has a, it, it rides the passaggio the entire time. And it has a de-emphasized syllable of a word on the highest note in the phrase. So you have to, and it's just a G. So you have to figure out how to um, crescendo a phrase and then diminuendo right where your voice doesn't want to. Yeah, uh, in, a, and in do an that area couple- that's very difficult to navigate and you're like i almost wish this were a step higher so that i had a little bit more wiggle room but no yeah i don't notoriously difficult but if you listen to um frank lopardo singing actually we're going to listen to a little bit of him singing it right now uh just how he was able to do this so sweetly uh and really make uh make something beautiful out of this aria which can be very boring if it's not done well and also Mm -hmm can be torture for the tenor singing it. Mm-hmm. And maybe torture for the audience because we hear <laughs> that you're having mm-hmm. trouble in it. <laughs> so here is from a, another starry cast recording. This is uh, led by Ricardo Muti from the EMI recording that includes uh, Sam Raimi as Lavarello, Cheryl Studer as Donna Anna, uh, Carol Vanis is Donna Elvira on this recording. But here is Frank Lopardo, Dalla Sua Pace. So the story goes that um, Frank Lopardo was singing, I think, the Berlioz Requiem, maybe, uh, somewhere in Boston. And uh, another very high, thankless uh, solo. (laughs) Like all Berlioz tenor music. (laughs) High and thankless. And uh, Schulte was in town and 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 Frank Lopardo's manager scored him an audition. And apparently Frank Lopardo wasn't expecting to give an audition. It had none of his music, you know, not, he didn't have his folder with his tabs and all of his whatever, <laughs> you know. And so he had to like go to the library and get photocopies. But uh, he sang. Mini-graphs. Yes. <laughs> they call us dittos. Um, he sang for George Schulte and George Schulte 
commented commented to him, which apparently was something that Schulte didn't really ever do, telling him that you have Mozart and Verdi in your throat. And soon after, uh, he was cast uh, in the famous La Traviata from the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, which became the star vehicle for Angela Gheorghiu. Uh, he was engaged to do that, but before uh, that contract came about, before that contract uh, came to fruition, he was uh, cast suddenly uh, in a recording of Così Fan Tutte that was supposed to star Luca Canoncini. Uh, Luca Canoncini, I believe, backed out of it or something happened and he had to fill in singing um, Ferrando in Rene Fleming's first full opera recording, right. uh, Così Fan Tutte. So another great opportunity for Frank Lopardo. Uh, but as I said, he was also very shortly going to go to England and sing this Traviata, which begins sort of like, not the end of Frank Lopardo's career, but it's the last commercial recording that he made. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sang this uh, Alfredo, which is on video and everything. And, and he told Frank told me that um, he wasn't expecting it to be recorded or to be become a movie, but because Andrew Georgi was becoming such a big star because of that production. Especially in that role, yeah. Yeah, they decided to just make everything out of it. And so uh, his interpretation of Alfredo is now immortalized uh, as the duet partner <laughs> for Angela Georgi. <laughs> uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago, where we're coming to from Chicago, was the house where he made his big American breakthrough, singing the role of Elvino in Sonambula with Cecilia Gazdia, 1988. Uh, Again, and that was high and thankless. <laughs> Yes, and that was a year before he had his first contract at the Met uh, singing Barbara Seville. And it also was the house where he uh, retired. Uh, Lyric gave him many important engagements. He was sort of the house tenor for a couple of years, uh, singing um, Lenski and Eugene Onegin, Rodolfo in La Boheme, uh, Gabriele Adorno in Simon Bocanegra, and probably his largest assignment, uh, Ricardo in Un Ballo in Mascara. And he, Opposite my bay, Sandra. I know. Did you go to that? I was mm-hmm. there. Were you, okay. So uh, that is when, so Frank Lopardo told me that he decided to retire when he, in his 50s, because he felt like he was already beginning to get fewer and fewer engagements, and he didn't want to be one of those tenors that stuck around for too long. Uh, or become unwanted. a baritone. <laughs> he didn't want to become one particular tenor. But uh, we are talking about how before Frank Lopardo, uh, you know, there weren't really... Before Frank Lopardo, Rocco Blake, and uh, Francisco Reza, we didn't really have great uh, Rossini singing. And uh, I guess we want to finish... Uh, before, I mean, actually, let, before, we're going to finish with one more Rossini track, but is there something else you want to say about the importance of Frank Lopardo's career in the American, uh, you know, the scene and that's for bel canto and for well they he they just are a very important bridge into the next generation of singers beyond and even beyond flora the ones that we named earlier flores brownlee camarena like ramon vargas sings that music beautifully mm-hmm. raul uh raul jimenez, jimenez would not they we wouldn't have careers like that if if we hadn't had the frank lapardos to get those operas to be done and to mm-hmm. get them to be done regularly and to get them to be done well it and to help that music makes sense to a generation of singers who grew up learning to be able to sing it because they had role models. Yeah. 
I mean, I wanted to. I thought I was going to become a Rossini tenor because I love same here. <laughs> I loved his singing so much. I thought, oh my god, I you know I want to sing like that. I want to be like whatever boss. <laughs> uh, I have to say also that he is a great actor, and I wanted to say this um, in that Italiana recording, which is maybe one most top to bottom like complete comic bel canto opera recordings of all time. It's just joy from start to finish and Agnes Balza is so amazing in that uh in that role and Ruggiero Remo I mean really the mm-hmm. cast talked about it but if you want to like listen to a recording and just hear the entire thing and be just delighted I yeah. do recommend that Italiana as racist and problematic as <laughs> opera is. yeah just don't listen don't pay too close attention to the plot because it doesn't make <laughs> sense it's all it's mostly just racist jokes but Ag- Agnes Balza is a voice to me that t- it sounds she sounds like she might catch on fire at any moment, like literally catch on fire. <laughs> and when she's at her best and in a performance where everyone else kind of feels at that same level, like it is oh. electric. And that yeah. recording is certainly electric. Oh, yeah. And I meant to say that um, in that uh, first uh, Zitz probe or rehearsal, uh, that I say that Agnes Balza gave a wink to Claudia Abado. Like, no. Saying, oh. Yeah. She's like, oh. You got a tenor, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also want to recommend, um, and I, I'm loathe to recommend it, but uh, there is a recording of Barbara Seville out there, uh, also led by Claudio Abado. The, se- star- the second Abado. Yes, Barbara, uh, which his... stars Frank Lopardo as um, Almaviva. The dialogue in this recording that Frank Lopardo is in, the, the recitative, the psycho recitative, are so good. Uh, because he knows that role. So, I mean, he sang that role a thousand times if he sang it once. Uh, it's so embodied and it's hilarious, especially that really annoying Don fake uh, Don. Uh, the music uh, teacher yeah. sequence where he's. Don yeah, Alonso, in, um, I forget. Yeah. yeah, Alonso. Yeah, Don Alonso. The Don Alonso moment can be really tedious, but he is so funny in it. Uh, so, I know that there's a person on that recording that we're not really talking about these days, and maybe it's a reason to avoid that recording in general. But just get yourself uh, to your whatever way you listen to music and just fast forward to act two and listen to the recit after um, the Pache Joya moment. Uh, it's so good. He does all these voices and uh, it's so colorful and well pronounced and it's it's just i adore it so i'm gonna recommend that but we're gonna close with some more rossini uh this is the uh cabaletta of um idreno's second aria from a early 90s recording of semidamide uh which starred cheryl studer and i forget who the mezzo is on that it's jennifer larmore and jennifer larmore okay uh once again frank lopardo Oh, <laughs> 
Frank Lopardo inducted into the hallowed halls of the upper box score. And you could hear him uh, on listening to singers for, well, for about 10 days from the time you hear this. It's on the archive at WFMT until April 22nd. A little sports talk before we get to the two-minute drill. News from the Chicago Blackhawks. First of all, Marion Hosa was a hockey player who helped the Hawks to Stanley Cup trophies in the 2010s. He uh, had played for other teams. Last week, he re-signed for the Hawks for one day so he could then immediately retire as a Chicago Blackhawk. That is what I call loyalty. In addition, get this, the Blackhawks are cutting their ticket prices by 20% across the board because not enough fans are going to the games. It's the only place where inflation doesn't apply right <laughs> Apparently <now>. so. <laughs> United Center. I just, I felt like they took a, a, a page out of like not-for-profit opera houses and doing that. Okay, before, before, before I move on, I just want to call out some stupidity. Uh, you know I love you, uh, Stephanos, uh, my Greek god. But uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, boy, did he put his foot in his mouth. Um, I forget exactly uh, for what platform, maybe for uh, because French Open is going to happen soon-ish. Uh, he said that women shouldn't get paid as much as the men because oh. men play five set matches. You know, men play five set matches exactly four tournaments a year out of the however many tournaments there are on the in the season. Come so on, yes, man. you play five set matches every whatever three or four months (laughs) (laughs) this just in the two-minute drill all right listen up here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week A new exhibition at Germany's National History Museum examines the legacy of the country's arguably most important and much less arguably most infamous composer, Richard Wagner. Included in the exhibit is an audio installation by Jewish director Barry Kosky, a mishmash of synagogue music interspersed with recordings of Jewish characters from Wagner's operas and selections from Wagner's Jewishness in Music essay, Read in Yiddish. The effect, according to Kosky, is, quote, deliberately nauseating. <laughs> In other nauseating news, Russian-based baritone Yevgeny Nikitin is slated to appear at the Marinsky Theater under the baton of Putin ally conductor Valery Gergiev. If you're wondering why that name is triggering you, let us remind you that Yevgeny Nikitin is the same guy who was compelled to withdraw from a production of at Bayreuth because of his swastika tattoos. At the time, he said he was, quote, not aware of the extent of the irritation and offense these signs and symbols would cause. Meanwhile, a soprano who was on the slate next season at the Mets, Albina Shagimuratova, will perform at the Russian state-funded Zayadya Hall later this month. And we're also here to remind you that Peter Gelb stated that the Met would cut ties with, quote, artists or institutions that support Putin or are supported by him. Soprano Olga Peretiako is 50% Russian, 50% Ukrainian, and 100% done with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Peretiako postponed her concert in Russia until October, peace pending. A villa Tchaikovsky once lived in has been destroyed as a result of the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. When the composer was 24, the Ukrainian city of Trostyanets was under the control of the Russian Empire, and it was there that Tchaikovsky composed his first symphonic work. 
The Royal Opera House will produce an opera dramatizing the final days of grunge rock hero Kurt Cobain. Last Days will be adapted from the film of the same name by Gus Van Sant, which details the, well, last days of a young musician named Blake, loosely based on the iconic Nirvana frontman. The opera's composer Oliver Leith is the ROH's 31-year-old composer in residence and a self-described massive Nirvana fan. In more royal news, the Royal Opera House has won in both opera categories at the 2022 Olivier Awards. Outstanding achievement in opera went to conductor Peter Whelan and the Irish Baroque Orchestra for Bayezet, beating out ENO's set and costume design for HMS Pinafore, sorry George, and mezzo-soprano <laughs> Christine Rice's performance in 4-4, which also was at the Royal Opera House. Best new opera production went to Yenufa, which defeated Handel's Theodora and Vivaldi's Bayezet, all three at Royal Opera House, and poor ENO's cunning little vixen. In England, you still can't compete with the Royals. <laughs> Atlanta Opera is cruising for a red card as it, it announced that it would no longer require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to attend. The company also said that masks were encouraged, but not required. In trade news, English Touring Opera has announced that writer-director Robin Norton Hale will be taking over as the general director in July. Says Norton Hale, I'm delighted to be joining English Touring Opera, whose mission to make outstanding opera accessible to the widest possible audience has been an inspiration to me throughout my career. On the disabled list, well, not quite disabled, on the pregnancy list, soprano Rosa Feola <laughs> will be replaced by Daniel Denise taking over for her as, as uh, Norina in all performances of Don Pasquale at Staatsoper Hamburg, opening in May. Exit stage right, American tenor Stephen O'Mara has died at age 60. O'Mara had a long and distinguished worldwide career that included most of the Verdi and Puccini canon. Soprano Maria Mull passed away in early April. She was an integral performer among many British opera companies, including ENO, WNO, Opera Scotland, and Glyndebourne from the 1970s to the 90s. But did she perform at the Royal Opera House? Composer Dorothy Rudmore has died at the age of 81. She received commissions from the National Symphony, Opera Ebony, and Buffalo Philharmonic, among others. Considered one of her generation's leading composers of color, her music has been performed and recorded worldwide and includes chamber pieces, song cycles, orchestral music, and in 1985, the world premiere her opera, Frederick Douglass in New York City. And on this day, April 11th in 1852, it was the first performance of Adolphe Adam's Le Roi des Alles. Uh, in 1966, it was the birth of Italian opera composer Ferruccio Busoni, a personal hero of mine. Walter Kaufmann, the German-American conductor and composer, was born on this day in 1907 in Karlsbad. In 1934, uh, there was the birth in Vienna of conductor Henry Holt in 1938. German bass Kurt Moll was born in Köln. And in 1965, it was the first performance of David Amram's Passover opera, The Final Ingredient, which premiered on television, recorded in New York City. And that's your two-minute drill.
just a little bit of Dorothy Rudmore's opera, Frederick Douglass. That was from Act Two, a performance. Uh, actually, it wasn't a full performance. That was a little bit of a concert performance in the from the 2016 Atlanta Music Festival. And I couldn't decide whether we were going to hear uh, Frederick Douglass or if we're going to hear mm -hmm. Quartz Mole. And I think that we did an On This Day, April 11th, either last year or the year before, because I remember these names and this combination of... Uh, <laughs> it sounds non familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> and um, I think we might have heard Quartz Mole um, singing commendatory or something like that. I love, 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 love Quartz Mole. Maybe you, like me, just uh, have like a little shrine to Ferruccio Busoni, and you're just oh, yeah. uh, very I mean, hyper sure. aware of his birthday. You know. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's just let's just get this straight. So, in the opera bracket, I was asked to name five Handel operas. One of them I mentioned <laughs> was Theodora. That didn't count. Now yeah. I find out that the nominees for best new opera production for the Olivier Awards included <laughs> Handel's Theodora. Yeah, it's an oratorio, so. I, I, I don't care if it won or lost. What I'm saying is, how could it be nominated for Best New Opera Production if it's not an opera? Well, that's why it didn't win. Because they've decided yeah. that, oh, this isn't really an opera. So even though... They're like, our, even our though, mistake. We, re we retract that one. <laughs> even though we have Jakob Josef Orlinski's Naked Cakes, uh, it still doesn't win. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, those oh, cakes. Man. I, I love that um, uh, English Touring Opera, or ETO, as it's known, has a new... Writer director, of course, there was the whole kerfuffle earlier this year about the orchestra members were yes. asked to reapply. Um, there's some allegations of, of racism there. Most important is that I don't think you get to run English touring opera unless you have a double barreled surname. So I think you, you have to be somebody like Robin Hel Norton Hale. Or like Helena Bottom Carter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she, I think she's going to be next uh, on the roster. <laughs> Jennifer Love oh, Hewitt. Yeah, yeah, there's so many of them. Yeah. <laughs> At least three that we've named so far. This yeah. is a, a good use of our time. Uh, <laughs> I think it's really a, a kind of a, a, a tragedy. I mean, obviously, everything happening with the war right now in Ukraine is a tragedy. Um, but uh, I, I just find it ironic that a lot of uh, we've been hearing a lot of propaganda from Putin, mm -hmm. specifically how the West is canceling Tchaikovsky and like, you know, uh, everything's being, you know, uh, all this Rus great Russian culture is being, you know, destroyed and like bemoaned by the West. And, and they're the ones literally leveling Tchaikovsky's old house. You know, um, yeah. it, it really is a shame. There's a there's a lot of history being lost over there. A lot of great cultural uh, uh institutions the Kharkiv Opera House yeah. you know, of course yeah. and uh things like that it's a it, it's a real tragedy because um the whole area of eastern europe you know including russia have you know this great amazing tradition of opera and uh culture and it just goes to show that war really does bring out the worst in people and all of that is lost it you does, know it, does. it really is i mean obviously like the loss of life is far and away first and foremost the most tragic and oh, disgusting thing 100%. about this, right? That's not your point. But these places matter. That opera house matters. This villa matters. Yes. And, and these places are being lost. So there was another story that we didn't end up talking about um, from our friends at Opera Wire, uh, which lists more singers who are set to perform with Valery Gergiev, uh at either the Marinsky or at the Bolshoi. And they include names like Ilar Ad 
Ildar Adrazakov and uh, Ekaterina Semunchuk, among other names. Uh, I am a big fan of Adrazakov, and I just wonder if I'm... can't pronounce his name, though. Well, you don't have to pronounce his last name when you're in bed. Um, I just wonder (laughs) if I'm, like, becoming like a McCarthyist or something like that. It's like where like all these people are like blacklisted, you know, and the artists that whatever, I mean, it's, it's complicated because you know that some of them might feel pressure to, you know, stand with their national government because otherwise they would be like excommunicated, you know? And right, uh, look, it, so it is, it is complicated. These battle lines, <laughs> pardon that metaphor. We, we knew they were going to be drawn. Okay. All we ask is that these artists do not use art as an excuse to have no political opinion. Like that does not wash, right? So what these artists are doing, they are taking a political stand, and I have to, I have to respect that, right? I don't, I don't agree with the stand that they're taking, right? I think they're with the bad guys, obviously, but at least they are artists and they are taking a political stand by singing in these concerts. Well, Russia can keep Yevgeny Nikitin. Um, honestly, God, oh, yeah, that guy's yeah. a real piece of work. Oh yeah. man, honestly, really I've is. never. I, I I I vaguely remembered like the original story from way back when. Yeah. It, it was years ago that 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 he got kicked yep. out. Yeah, exactly. Ten years ago. Jeez. Oh man. Oh. Uh, I I remember the story when it came out, and uh, I remember like he had like uh, I I think the excuse that time was like he was young, he he didn't really know any better. But I, I I apparently missed the point where he started saying that the tattoo was actually just an unfinished design for something else yeah he kept you know? adding things to it yeah, yeah and, and and then of, and then if you actually look at the completed tattoo um sure the the part where there was a swastika has been now blacked out but um there is still a uh, bundle of sticks and an axe head on there which if you are a savvy uh student of early 20th century history you might recognize as the fashy um, baby. Which, you know, is, you know, it's a little less on the nose than a swastika. But I would say once you have two accidental Nazi symbols on you, yeah. you probably lose that excuse. No. Uh, and then, of course, now we just have another reason to to get canceling with. The, I mean, all you have to do is stuff. is just type in Yevgeny Nikitin and the word tattoo into the search engine and see like the progress of this <laughs> tattoo. Like how it was clearly a swastika before it became whatever it's his so family bad. crest or whatever it is now. <laughs> Let's let's bring uh, it home before we wrap up the segment. Atlanta Opera no longer requiring proof of vaccination or negative COVID test. Masks are encouraged, not required. Is this going to end in tears? I mean, it's it's I think probably I don't think it's a good idea. I uh, I'm I'm speaking as someone who, you know, whose main opera company, I think I mentioned last week mm-hmm. uh, growing up was the Atlanta Opera. Um, Is it an indoor venue? I, uh, well, and that's part of the question that I have, and I wasn't quite sure because they also have their big tent series going on mm-hmm. right now, which was a great mm-hmm. way to sort of mitigate COVID risks as well as being, you know, um, artistically interesting. So I assume uh, it's referring to indoor performances. I know that they're uh, trying to introduce some indoor performances. I'm not 100 percent sure, so I could be eating my words next week. Uh, feel free to correct me, listeners. Um, but uh if it is for indoor performances, even if it's for outdoor performances, honestly, 
I do understand, you know, there is a lot of pressure in the South. It's a more politically conservative area. And unfortunately, this has become a political issue. Mm -hmm. So there is more pressure from uh, patrons to lift these kinds of thing, requirements. But I uh, I really wish they wouldn't, you know. And uh, shout out to uh, anyone at Atlanta Opera who also thinks this is a bad decision. And uh, know that I understand you and, uh, you know, do your best to push forward or leave whatever you need to do. I mean, I think you talked about it last week, but you know, right here in Chicago, there was an outbreak of COVID at our big opera house and mm -hmm. it almost mm -hmm. entirely mm -hmm. derailed yeah. uh, their final performances of fire shut up in my bones and caused the company to ca panic cast mm -hmm. uh, Tosca chorus and small roles in Tosca. Right. That's a, I think you just I'm making phrase, my lyric Oliver. opera debut as the sacristan. <laughs> <laughs> I just graduated from college. <laughs> I, I think you just coined a phrase there, panic casting. I love that, but they but they did. I mean this this episode's not about lyric, but but yeah, they they got a very very close call on that it, lyric. I I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I don't even know if I respect the decision. I guess it depends if, if this is indoors or outdoors. I love the big tent outdoors. I think that's awesome. Toasty, man, Atlanta in September without AC. That would be it's true. And I, I imagine that is a, a factor uh, in some decisions. And coming from the South, like there are definitely huge swaths of the year. You do not want to be outside. <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Fast and Furious today on the OBS. Good call, bad call. We're going to take you home. Oliver Camacho. I would be remiss if I did not promote or help promote the debut recording, a uh, solo recording of one of our favorite friends of the show. Rachel Willis Sorensen's solo album just came out last week. And unlike other artists who record these kind of rite of passage solo albums, this is actually repertoire which she sings, repertoire she's sung on stage. So it is. it feels much more lived in, much more detailed, uh, much more coached, for lack of a better word. I don't know how many recordings I've listened to of sopranos with glamorous voices who you can tell they just cracked open the score to record those arias. <laughs> uh, Rachel sounds incredible, and it also features some moments uh, of duet, duet moments with Jonas Kaufmann. He's a pretty good singer. Uh, and <laughs> You might uh, have heard of him. Yeah, and actually, uh, Olivia Kaler, mezzo-soprano, makes an appearance on this recording. And she is uh, she has a relationship to Opera Box Score. I'll just leave it there. So uh, a really wonderful thing uh, all around. Please check it out. Weston Williams. My good call is the fact that here in Chicago, winter is finally breaking, spring is upon us. I wore short sleeves outside today for the first time in what seems like 30, 40 years. Um, I, I looked out at the lake, the ice, the ice flows were cracking away, the polar bears were going into hibernation for the summer. It was truly uh, a wondrous sight to but behold. Can you make it about opera or sports, please? The polar bears were singing uh, Goethe Demerung. Perfect. Same. Uh, good call that Michael, the documentary about Michael Fabiano called Crescendo is uh, coming out on Roku. Looking forward to seeing that. The Wasn't that originally on that other um, oh, I'm, plat um, platform, that platform I'm, that died? Uh, Qu uh, Quibi. Quibi, yeah, Quibi. Quibi. <laughs> Quibi. 
Man, he knows how to pick them. <laughs> the bad oh, call. Boy. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about this production of Wagner's uh, Rheingold that has three directors, one for each of the three acts. And I took a look at the production picture for the first act. Oh, my Lord. I, I was blind for approximately 45 minutes afterwards. Oh, we'll wow. put a, it's it's very Reggie Theater, isn't it? We'll, we'll put a, a pic on that on, on the website. might even be in the, um, uh, the TDO show yeah. as well. Let's that wrap first it up. One, that first one looks like uh, David Hockney's garbage. Like yeah. Something he threw away. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, like, uh, it's like the mind. Hockney production of Turned Up, but just yeah. far, far worse. <laughs> That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell. NormWaddell.com is how you find him. Again, if you're watching on Dallas Opera Network, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxcore gmail.com. You're going to get some merch, OBS beer coaster, and lapel pin. Even Kenny got some from us, and boy, did he deserve it. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you panic cast a COVID-infested production of Tosca. We're back with an all-new show next week when Sportsando rears its ugly head again. Plus, you get more opera headlines, you get more hot takes, and you get more enzymatically derived sweet white and yellow filling in a chocolate shell. Join us. Delicious. <laughs>